Good evening, church. You may be seated. For those of you I haven't met, my name is Alex Schroeder, and I am here just trying not to mess this up. Uh, yeah, I'm assuming most of you are here because Chase's announcement on Sunday, uh, pointing out maybe some of the complexities and difficulties of this passage. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, I do feel like Chase really set me up for you guys to look more closely, perhaps. And that's a good thing. I want you to study the Bible and look closely at it. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 17. The doctrine of salvation is beautiful and it's multifaceted. The scriptures present to us so many angles and perspectives that we can look at salvation from. And each one of those angles and perspectives presents to us another ever-increasing, more beautiful view. This doctrine of salvation is like a diamond. And as it sits still, it possesses its own beauty. But yet as you turn it and you consider it from various angles, each turn produces another shine and glimmer and sparkle. And as you continue to turn it and view it in all of its glory, you appreciate the beauty even more. Well, the same is true of salvation. So what are some of these perspectives of salvation that we have in Scripture? Well, maybe you've heard a phrase like, we're saved from the punishment of sin. Or maybe another angle, our debt is paid. Or maybe we're redeemed from slavery. We're declared righteous by the judge. We were once lost, but now we're found. We were dead, but raised to life. We have been forgiven our trespasses. Our blind eyes are now opened and we see. We were once enemies, but now we're at peace with God. Or we've been washed by the blood. And we, I could go on. All of these different perspectives, all of this language describes the work of Christ and they pile together and create a beautiful mosaic to show the glory of God in saving sinners. Well, our passage tonight highlights another perspective, another angle at which we can think about the glory of salvation in Christ. This evening, we're going to consider the doctrine of adoption. Adoption, or as J.I. Packer defines it, our permanent intimacy with God because he is our heavenly father. Our permanent intimacy with God because he's our heavenly father. Let me suggest that this is the main idea of our passage tonight. The sons of God are free from the law so that we are free to love. The sons of God are free from the law so that we are free to love. Join with me in reading this passage in Matthew 17, beginning in verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from, other, and when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea 
and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. We'll consider this main idea in three points this evening. First, we'll consider a question about taxes. A question about taxes. Our passage begins with a shift in scenery. The past few chapters, Jesus and his disciples have been away from their home base of ministry, Capernaum. But now they've returned. And while they're there, Peter is addressed with a question about taxes. We aren't quite sure what prompts the question. It could be that they've passed through some toll booth on the way into the city. Or maybe it was just sparked by curiosity from a tax collector. But either way, it's tax season. And the collector wants to know whether or not Jesus will pay the tax. But this isn't your standard tax collector. Perhaps you've been trained through studying the Bible to think of tax collectors as this hated group within Jewish society. These were men who were Jewish but had betrayed their Jewish loyalties and attached themselves to the Roman government and were collecting tax on behalf of Rome from their own brothers and sisters in Israel. They were also known for their greed because they would take more taxes than necessary and pocket some for themselves. But that's not the kind of tax collector we're dealing with in this passage. Notice the specific tax we're dealing with in verse 24. The collector of the two drachma tax. This is a different tax. So what do we know about this two drachma tax? Well, we know the origin of it. It actually is talked about in the Mosaic law. In Exodus chapter 30, we have this instruction to Moses and the people of Israel beginning in verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there may, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who's numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who's numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. From this passage alone, we learn a number of things that those that would give the tax were adults over the age of 20. We understand why they would give it. It was for the upkeep of the sanctuary and it would serve as a ransom to protect them from plagues. And we even see that they're to give half of a shekel. And it's worth pointing out here that a shekel holds the value of four drachma. So the tax is half a shekel or two drachma. Either way, uh, it's the same value, but you'll see both of these designations in this passage. But we also learn a lot more about this tax from two Jewish sources from around the time of Jesus. One is the historical writings of Josephus, which we allude to quite often because there's a mass of data that Josephus has recorded to us about Jesus' day, and he lists a number of details about this tax. We also have the Jewish Mishnah, which is this oral tradition of the rabbis passed down, where they give clear instructions on when the tax can be collected and where the collectors will be found. The thing that's worth noting about this is that this is not a practice that's extra-biblical. It's not a practice that the Romans are enforcing upon Israel. It's not a practice that the Pharisees have corrupted and built up and made larger and more extravagant or more significant 
than it was intended to be. This is required and commanded in the Mosaic law. And even while the Jews were under Roman authority, they continued to keep this tax so that the temple would be in good working order. And so the collector of this tax, this Jewish tax, comes to Peter and asks him whether or not Jesus would pay it. But yet notice the posture in which he comes. The collector doesn't seem to be trying to trap or trick Jesus. He just wants to know. It's difficult to see, at least I think it is, and how the ESV translates it, but there's two different ways in Greek to ask a question. One way you can ask a question supposes that you're going to say no. And the other way to phrase it supposes you're going to say yes. This construction here is the way that would suppose that you're going to say yes. So even this collector is not intending, is not expecting that Jesus is anti-Israel or anti-temple. He's coming to Peter saying, hey, Jesus, he gives the toll to the tax, he pays the tax, doesn't he? And so he's not coming with skepticism or some uh, cynicism. He's coming with just curiosity. And Peter confidently says at the beginning of verse 25, yes, Jesus will pay the tax. But this, Peter's answer, should lead us to ponder. We're following the trend of Peter in these past couple chapters. Peter's not been doing so hot. He's got a lot of things wrong lately. And so it's just worth asking alone, should we trust Peter's answer? Or is there more going on here? Is this another one of Peter's blunders? Well, that's where we need to keep following the story. Let's consider our second point, a question about sons. As Peter enters back into this household with Jesus, Jesus comes to him with another taxing question. What do you think, Simon? For whom, from whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? We see Peter's response at the beginning of verse 26. He says confidently, from others. And Peter's correct. And this whole question and this whole interchange and how this all fits together at first can seem a little perplexing. What's Jesus talking about? And how does this question clarify or even add to this discussion presented by the tax collector? Let's consider what Jesus says. First, he begins by identifying a group of people, kings of the earth. When he says kings of the earth, Jesus is speaking in parabolic language. He's not addressing any particular group in his mind. He's not thinking of Caesar. He's simply trying to conjure up the idea of a king. And so he asks, when there's a king, who is he taking tax from? It's assumed kings are going to be taking taxes. Frankly, they need to find a way to make their own money as a king. So they're going to be taking taxes, but who are they going to tax? So this is a hypothetical, parabolic question driving Peter to an answer. And Peter's answer is right. The king taxes others. The king isn't going to go into his own household to his 14-year-old son and say, pay up. Instead, he goes to those outside of the house, the strangers. Perhaps these are people that, he, that the nation has conquered. Perhaps this is just citizens of the kingdom that don't belong to the king's household. The point being, though, it's not the sons that are taxed. Sons have a special privilege. So let's try and connect Jesus' parabolic question back to the first question at hand. 
Does Jesus pay the tax? Well, following the logic of his parable, who's the king of the temple that requires the tax? The Lord. And so then who would be the son that's exempt? We don't even have to think very hard about this because we've been following the book of Matthew and we know Matthew 16, 16, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we know Matthew 17, 5, where the voice from the cloud says, this is my beloved son. So who's the son that's exempt? Jesus. Jesus is exempt from the tax. So Peter, bless his heart, is wrong again. He confidently said, yes, he'll pay the tax, but he doesn't understand all that's going on. He doesn't understand the full picture of what's happening. But notice one detail about Jesus' question and about his answer at the, at the, in the middle, at the end of verse 26. Jesus doesn't just talk about a son. He talks about sons, plural. The idea present here is that is not that Jesus has some unique exemption, but that all those that are sons with Jesus have this same exemption. He has a unique relationship to the Father, but those that are in Christ share that same unique relationship. And so how are strangers, how are others brought into the family? Well, this beautiful doctrine of adoption. Adoption is our being identified by God as his children and being brought into the family of God so that we would receive all of the spiritual blessings that sons and daughters rightfully deserve. We're brought into the family through the unique son and then we receive all spiritual blessings Every last one of them. John 1 verse 12 tells us, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 1 verse 12 tells us how that happens. How are enemies made to be sons and daughters? By receiving the son by faith. We all were once enemies of God, hostile to him. Whether you thought you were, whether it was evident in your actions and your care toward him, or whether you were that good young Christian boy or girl in Awana's memorizing verses, you were hostile to him. But there was a great reversal that takes place. The son is treated as God's enemy and crucified. And the enemies are brought into the family and invited to sit at the family meal. Our union with Christ and our subsequent adoption means that we are treated in ways that we never should be. I have a friend back in Arkansas that I met after I graduated from college, and he's an incredible networker. I was always amazed at the people he knew, and then the stories of how he met them felt so strange, but somehow he just capitalized on these smallest moments to make people like him and stay in touch with him somehow. And there was a time where he invited me to go with him to a concert. 
Uh, and I said, sure, that sounds fun. So we like drove a couple hours and on the way there, I realized we don't have tickets. And I was like, Thomas, what are you doing? And he's like, no, 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 it's not a big deal. I know the lead singer of the band. And I was like, well, that checks out. Um, and so we like pull into the back of the venue. The lead singer like comes out the back door, greets Thomas with a hug. And I'm like tagging along and we're like given these lanyards we walked through all of the like equipment, all of the like, I don't even know what it was, but we're just, we're surrounded by all these people that like work in production behind the scenes and they all know Thomas and I am just, I feel so left out. And the whole time people kept asking me like, who are you and why? And I, I don't even know if I told them my name. I just said, I'm Thomas's friend. And so my relationship to Thomas in that moment gave me things that I didn't deserve. I was welcomed into places that I shouldn't have been welcomed to. I was around people I had no business being around. And in a far greater and more glorious way, Jesus's unique relationship to the Father provides all spiritual blessings to those who are united to him by faith. So we have an eternal inheritance from God. We in Christ have an eternal inheritance, imperishable, unfading, and undefiled. That's how 1 Peter 1 describes it. We are loved by the Father like Christ is loved. And we have personal access to the Father through prayer. We're treated differently. So brothers and sisters, tonight as we come to the table... We don't come as an outsider or as a stranger. We come as adopted children. What's our confidence? That we belong. It's our table. It's our family meal. We get to commune with each other because we're a family in Christ. And we get to commune with God because we are in Christ and adopted into the family. And we look forward to the bigger, the better the grander family meal that we'll be welcome to. We'll have a name placard on our seat there because we're welcomed and known that we will be there. But it's not our own doing. It's not because we've earned it. It's because the Son has bought it for us. And what we're going to do tonight is a family meal. It's for those who've been adopted into the family. And if you have not received the son, if you've not trusted in Christ, then this meal is not for you. You don't need to be worrying about communing with God through the bread and the cup. Your, your worry should be to you commune with him by faith. The bread and the cup, they're symbols and they point to something far more important. Has his blood been shed for you? And so if you're not adopted into the family, if you've not been baptized into the community, then don't take the cup. If you're not in Christ, you're still an enemy. Your sin has separated you. You are a stranger. And yet tonight, you can receive the son. You can believe him. You can be welcomed in and brought in not as a stranger, but as a son and daughter. And all of those spiritual blessings can be yours because Christ has paid for your sins.
And so what a beautiful doctrine of adoption. That because of adoption, we are truly, eternally, securely loved. We have a direct line. A direct line to the Father for communication. And we have an eternal inheritance. But more than that, the sons and the daughters have freedom. Notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 26. Then the sons are free. This leads to our final point. An explanation about love. An explanation about love. Remember, our main point this evening is this. The sons of God are free from the law so that they are free to love. The sons of the king are not taxed, and so they're free. But what are they free from? Well, one level, maybe at the most in-your-face foundational level, it's we're free from the temple tax. We're not giving money to the service of the temple in Jerusalem. And neither were Jesus' disciples in that day bound to that. But Jesus' teaching here points to much more. Let me just ask a question to you. Remember, this command, this practice of the temple text was rooted in a command in the Mosaic law. How can Jesus just say, you don't have to obey the Mosaic law? You don't have to do that. What is going on in the ministry of Christ that makes it so that a law from the old covenant doesn't have to be obeyed? How can God's words not be obeyed? Well, everything before Christ was anticipating and foreshadowing him. And he has come in fulfillment of all that came before. And so this ministry of Christ causes a cataclysmic shift in redemptive history. The tectonic plates of redemption move and everything looks different. And it's all because the new covenant that he brings surpasses supersedes and terminates the Mosaic Covenant along with all of its commands. Paul, in Galatians 3, gives us some theological insight, some biblical theological trajectory insight into what's going on here. Galatians 3, verse 24 to 25, says this. So then the law, meaning the Mosaic law, was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. I don't know about you guys, but I love when Paul is saying the exact same thing that Jesus says, right? The law is no longer the guardian over the people of God. Because we're sons. So the Mosaic Covenant served as a guardian, a tutor. It was a temporary law that was intended to guard the nation of Israel until the time that Christ would come. And now that Christ has come, the guardian's gone. The commands of the Mosaic Law are totally and completely fulfilled in Christ. And we're no longer bound to that covenant and that law but we're bound to Christ and to the law of Christ. Hebrews 
And chapter 8 even goes so far as to say, this Mosaic law is obsolete. You just look at it and go, yeah, that thing's dated. That looks old. I don't even think I could sell that on Craigslist. The new covenant changes everything. The anticipated king has arrived. The priest without sin is here. The sacrifices are perfect now. The people of God are pure in Christ. The presence of God is with us now. And every single Old Testament promise is completed in him. The Mosaic law is replaced, and now we're under the law of Christ. And this is why the sons are free from the temple tax. There's more going on than just this neat little parable of kings and sons. Jesus' ministry is shifting redemptive history so that everything is superseded by this new work of Christ and the new law that Christ comes and the new covenant that he brings. And that's why he can say earlier in Matthew, washing hands has nothing to do with cleanliness. And that's why he can say in Mark that all foods are now deemed clean to eat. And that's why Jesus can say, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Because what he is doing is shifting redemptive history. He's the fulfillment and the termination of all that's come before in the Mosaic law. But how in particular does Jesus fulfill the temple tax? Let's just press it into that one issue. So to speak in generally, how does he fulfill that thing? Well, in one way, he is the temple. And that temple that the tax is going to is going to be destroyed in a couple years. But yet there's another way. Did you catch one of the reasons the tax was offered at all? In Exodus 30, verse 12, it says that each person would give a ransom for his life. Later in 30, verse 16, it calls it atonement money. There was something about this tax connected to a covering and a protection of God's people. But Christ is a better atonement than gold and silver. We don't have coins to ransom ourselves anymore. We have the precious blood of the Lamb. That tax pointed forward to our need of a redeemer. And when that redeemer cries out, it is finished, the tax is finished too. Because we don't atone through money. Christ atones for our sins. And so the sons are free. Christian, you are free from using the law as a way to earn your right standing before God. That's one of the most glorious truths in all the world. That whereas our world would say, here's some standard, and if you don't meet it, you're not good. And the Mosaic covenant offered, do this and live. Christ says, I will become a curse for you so that you could be blessed and be adopted into God's family. And so we're free. But what does freedom look like? It's quite easy to equate freedom with living for oneself. I'm free to do what I want. I'm free to watch what I want. I'm free to experience what I want. But that is not the freedom that our Lord shows us. 
That's not the freedom that the sons of God truly have. The law of Christ teaches us a higher way, modeled after our Savior. Our freedom from the law grants us freedom to love others. Because we are eternally secure in our love that we have from the Father, we can love others freely. We don't love thinking about what do we get back in return. We already have an eternal inheritance. We have secure love through adoption. So we can love indiscriminately without fear of what we might lose. This is the way of Christ. And Jesus doesn't just teach us this. He shows it to us. Jesus has said he's free from the law. But yet, others don't know about his freedom. Observers don't know about his freedom. And if others saw him live in the complete freedom that he rightfully has, they would understand him as being licentious or wantonly going into sin or perhaps being an enemy of God. And so because Jesus loves the mission that he's on of proclaiming his identity and his purpose and declaring the kingdom of God, he won't live completely free because it would be a stumbling block. It would be an offense. For the sake of his neighbor and for the sake of the mission, even though he's free from paying the tax, Jesus chooses to submit to the tax to love one tax collector that's watching. Verse 27 says, however, even though we're free, Peter, however, not to give offense to them. Though free from obligation, Jesus chooses the route of accommodation. Though free, Jesus binds himself to serve his neighbor. And yet this leads to some confusion, perhaps, if you've been following with us through Matthew. Perhaps you remember a time when Jesus wasn't concerned about offending others. In Matthew 15, we have a quote from Jesus' disciples after Jesus confronts the Pharisees about washing hands. And the disciples say, Jesus, don't you know that you're teaching offended the Pharisees? So what do we do here? At times, Jesus willingly and readily offends. And other times, for the sake of offense, he submits to accommodation. Let me just make two observations. I'm not saying I've cracked the code. Let me just make two observations about the differences between these two moments. First, Jesus is talking to two very different groups of people with very different postures toward him. The Pharisees are hostile. They're trying to trap and to trick. And yet this man just seems curious. Jesus is more motivated by the mission of proclamation. And he need not offend someone that seems willing to listen. While those Pharisees he offends because he wants to distance himself from them. He wants those in the crowds who might be confused or perplexed of, well, who is right? Is it Pharisees? Is it Jesus? He wants the crowds to hear clearly. And he wants those Pharisees to hear clearly too. And in God's wisdom, there's a Pharisee who comes to know him, Nicodemus. And so perhaps in some situations where someone seems more willing to listen and be receptive to the good news of Christ, Jesus shined away from offense. 
And there's a second difference. These two issues, hand washing in Matthew 15 and the temple tax here in Matthew 17, are viewed quite differently in the eyes of the rabbis. Hand washing was viewed as a way to make oneself clean or pure before the Lord. So participating in it, accommodating to hand washing, would demonstrate a betrayal of the gospel. To say that we're most accepted by God because of our external conformity to rules and washing of hands, that would push Jesus away from the truth. And yet, participating in this tax seemed like it was participating in the life of Jewish society. It's what it was to be a good Jewish citizen. It had nothing to do with earning your way before the Lord. At least that's not how the rabbis pushed it to the people. And so perhaps Jesus offends those that completely contradict the gospel while being willing to participate in generally helpful societal practices even when he's not required to do it as a citizen of heaven. So those are my two observations. I'm not pretending to have it all figured out, but I submit it to you to weigh it and consider. Is there a pattern of Christ to know when to offend and when to, for the sake of offense, accommodate? But the sons are free. And yet Jesus keeps it. The way of Christ is service, humility, accommodation, and dying to self. The sons are free from the law too because of our adoption into Christ. But we are freed for a purpose. We are freed to love. Freedom leads to the service of others at our own cost. Freedom leads to lifting another up while dying to ourselves. Freedom leaves, leads to our responsibility to accommodate. And that's true to someone who's a Christian and to a non-Christian. Jesus is doing this to someone who's not following and not a disciple. Paul shows us this through his own example too. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19, Paul says this, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. For the sake of the mission, Paul accommodates serves, and puts on humility, though he is not obligated. And Paul instructs churches to do the same. Galatians 5.13 says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. This is one of my favorite like little Greek nuggets that I've learned. In that verse, Paul says you're free, but our freedom results in us enslaving ourselves to one another. That word serve is not the normal word for serve. It's a different word. And so Paul says, what does freedom get you? It frees you to love and serve and enslave yourselves to service to others. This is the model of Christ, not just in Matthew 17, but in all of his life and ministry. This is our Savior. This is his path. As Paul said in Philippians 2, Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
a right to be clung to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had all rights and all privileges. He was the eternal son, and he had greater freedom than you or I can imagine. And yet he became a servant. He became humbled to, a hum to an awful, excruciating, embarrassing death in a public setting. What unbelievable love. What unbelievable accommodation. What unbelievable service to sinners, to us. So brothers and sisters, your ransom tax has been paid completely. You are free from law keeping as a way to earn your righteousness. You're under the law of Christ and you've been freed from that, the law of Moses so that you can love others. Do you protect your rights at the expense of your neighbor's? Do you forgo freedom in Christ to serve weaker Christians? Do you hand over your time for the goods of your spouse or your family or your parents? Do you forsake your recreations and hobbies to love your brothers and sisters? This is the way of Christ, free but accommodating. As we bring this to a close, let's deal with the fish in verse 27. I've said this a number of times. The main idea is the sons of God are free from the law so that they are free to love. And I think that message is true, and yet we still have the fish at the end, and I, the fish doesn't seem to fit. So what's going on with the fish? Well, this fish has baffled commentators too. Jesus provides instruction to Peter. He predicts a miracle will happen, and yet we have no record at all of Peter going fishing, of finding the fish and the coin, or paying the tax. So commentators have been baffled. What's going on? Let me suggest to you what I think is going on. First, I think this really happened. Jesus predicted this, and it's included because it happened. Historically, it happened, and that's why it's here. It could have been left out, and the story would maintain intact, but it's meant to teach us something about what's going on when we live this way. So let me try and teach you, or let me tell you what I think it's teaching us. First, it shows us that Jesus and Peter have no money. They've got no, nothing to pay this tax, and they need a miracle to pay for it. At a simple level, this reminds us and instructs us that this way of love will be an added burden. We won't, in our own strength, be able to live the law of Christ out in service and hum hum humility and in selfless dying to ourselves regularly in our own strength. It will be a costly burden to take on. Just like Christ took on a costly burden for the sake of one man to not be offended. But it also shows us that God will regularly supply all that is needed for the Christian in this way of life. 
when Peter and Jesus take on this burden, God will miraculously allow a coin to fall out of a pocket or roll off the side of a ship and float and, and flitter down in the water and a hungry fish will see it and, and in excitement grab for it and be so disappointed and yet quickly grab for a hook and be pulled up without having swallowed it. God will work in unexpected ways. And if he can provide a coin through this kind of crazy circumstances, then the Lord can provide grace for us. Every single moment that we walk the path of Christ, of selfless, self-dying love for the sake of others and for the mission of the gospel. And the Lord has storehouses of mercy and grace. Paul in Ephesians talks about how it's lavished on us. It's just pour, it's like a 55-gallon drum of mercy just dumped on us. He has so much. And so we can walk the road of Christ. We can walk this law of Christ out and we can be freed to love because he will supply every need along the way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that by the work of Christ and by your spirit, we are yours. We belong to you as your sons and daughters. And Father, you've given us all spiritual blessings. But Lord, they are not for our sake. They are not for us to squander and live lavishly, but they are for us to love and serve others. So Lord, would you give us more grace? Would you help us walk like your son did, who gave himself up for us, who died for enemies? Lord, may we die to ourselves for those who are far from you and who are hard for us to love. May we be more like him. In Jesus' name we pray.